0: Greek-Australian author Peter Papathanasiu follows up his first novel, the 2021 crime debut novel of the year, The Stoning, with another haunting story called The Invisible. That's this week on The Joys of Binge Reading. A burnt-out detective Sergeant George Manolis travels to Greece to reconnect with his roots. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next installment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And in Binge Reading today, Peter talks about combining a leading career as a medical geneticist with writing fiction and about the space that he allowed in his life when his creative spirit blossomed. Our giveaway today is three series starters in mystery and romance. My book number one, Poison Legacy is in there, along with the selection of a lot of other talented authors. And a little bit of excited book news, we finished recording Poison Legacy in audio, and it should be able to buy for Christmas. We'll be announcing exact dates soon. Remember, if you like what you hear, leave us a review on your favourite podcast site. It helps others find us and enjoy the show too. Here we are with Peter. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's really great to have you with us.
1: Thanks, Jenny. It's great to be here.
0: Now, you built a very successful career as an internationally recognised research geneticist before you began your writing that's hard to even get your mouth around research geneticist. but you say that you've always had a passion for writing so what part did writing play on your life when you were doing your serious academics it did might not have even played a part just tell us about it
1: i used to write a lot as a kid read and write i eventually wanted to create my own story i was pretty good at school and i became more and more academic And as I became more academic with science, mathematics, and these hardcore subjects, I started to leave the creativity behind. And for many years, I didn't touch it at all. And I guess the way I was doing it was probably like writing letters and emails to friends and that's where I was telling them stories about what was happening in my life and things that had happened in the past as well I did a law degree as well and I think that helped improve my writing. a lot of scientists who struggle to write uh, uh, and also help my writing generally but for many years it was mainly just I look back at some of those emails and they were like 20-30 pages long to friends. oh my gosh I, even, I just wanted it was just a way of catching up and staying connected and it was just when I look back on it it was a form of creative writing.
0: Yes that's right now the books you've got two books out your first book The Stoning was deemed 2021's crime debut novel of the year a fantastic start and the one that you've just published called The Invisible is a follow-up on that the same character inhabits both although they're slightly different books and we'll get into that how did you actually make that transition from serious academia to serious fiction writing that was of a level that you can be a debut novel of the year?
1: I don't know. I think I was probably just a bit burnt out on the serious academic stuff. And I wanted to reconnect with something that was more fun and creative. And we're going back now to 2006, so back 15 years, when I started to make that switch. I began writing my first book in 2008, And uh, it was actually a memoir which came out before my two crime novels. Yeah, it's been a long journey and a lot of ups and downs, a lot of coursework and residencies that I've done along the way and drafts and ups and downs with agents and publishers.
0: That memoir, we'll go into it in a little bit more detail because I think there are quite a lot of parallels between some of your character, George Malonis, in the crime books and your personal experiences, which we can delve into as we go. But... I'd like to start with The Stoning because it's a pretty remarkable book. It's a tragic crime story underwritten with black humour. And the black humour is very much front of mind. You send a Greek-Australian cop named George Manolis to an outback town. He's very much a metro guy. He's a vegetarian. He's a non-beer drinker. And you send him out to this dead-end town where they pretty well don't believe people exist who don't drink beer. And his offsider is Sparrow, who's a gay Indigenous policeman. So you've got a great setup there for cultural conflict right at the beginning. And then you put a, an internment camp there too, so that you've got another spike in the tension levels in the town. It's an audacious setup. And I wondered if it did have personal undertones for you with this Greek Australian hero in particular.
1: Oh yeah, hard to lie and say that it didn't. I guess if I was always going to write a character, I was they talk about the fact that debut novelists have one foot firmly in non-fiction. They're inspired by their real lives. As I said, I studied law and I specialised in criminal law. Crime stories are very compelling. It's also the idea of a puzzle that people try to solve. So I thought if I was ever going to do something like that, it would probably be a detective that was an extension of myself. I guess it's based on myself and my brothers. And my brother is George. I think every Greek family has at least one George in it. And I, my overarching goal of the stoning was to tell a story about Australia and, and how the country country. country appears today as a multicultural country history that we have. We also have a checkered history with our Indigenous peoples and also my parents came to Australia as migrants and were warmly received in the 1950s when Australia needed to populate or perish, which was the Catch cry after the second world war. And I guess I feel we've lost our way a little bit in terms of immigration policies and the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. So it was that idea of having a small country town where you have these tensions that are existing between the white folks and the indigenous populations. And then you have this third group of people who come in who are new arrivals. And this is something that takes place in Australia. A lot of these immigration detention centers are often in. Rural towns is a way of stimulating the economy. And the town that I created was, I guess, supposed to be a microcosm of Australia to say that you've got all these differing cultures and racial backgrounds that exist and how do they get along. And the idea of telling a story through a crime, I think a crime is a really convenient vehicle in which to expose a community because when a crime Happens. Questions immediately get asked, and somebody is digging for the story behind the story. It can be an investigative journalist. That's a very convenient way of doing it, but I decided to do it more traditional detective, and it does give you that opportunity to dig into a community. So that was what I was trying to yeah. do. Yeah,
0: it fits that slot that has become very hot in Australia of rural noir, and in quite a good way, doesn't it? And I know other writers like Chris Hammer, who has been on the show. Praised it as being an outstanding example of rural noir but the invisible George has moved on he's burnt out by his police career there's something that happens at the beginning of the invisible that particularly sets him a little bit ajar he has a version of PTSD I think and he's put on health leave and he decides to go and search out his roots in Greece. And so that book doesn't take place in Australia, except in the very beginning pages. It's pretty well all set in, I think it is still Greece, northern Macedonia. And that is where your own family came from. So it's got close personal links. The book is also dedicated to your two brothers. So tell us a bit about that and how it links back to your memoir.
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting time with the second book as you said outback noir is a thing it's a, it's, a, it's a subgenre of of noir and crime so people who might have read the stoning and gone this ticks all my boxes for an australian outback no- novel and then they see there's a second one out and they pick that up and they go hang on a minute what happened to the kangaroos what, what happened to the sweltering heat and the vast distances what's this greek story that that the author's doing here i mean I guess it's a form of outback Greece is a way, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. The book is a form of of Greek noir. Noir is uh, stories that dig into the darker sides of life and society and and, they have anti-heroes and they often don't have a pleasant ending either. So I guess I felt that if I'm going to tell a story with a Greek Australian detective, the first book is going to be set in Australia logically because it's where I grew up, the country I'm most familiar with, and you can hear it in my voice that I have in Australia. But then I thought, if you're going to have a second installment and you've explored the Australian side of George's heritage, it only makes sense to explore the Greek side of his story. And to challenge myself a little bit to not be a writer that's producing just Outback Noir and to portray another culture, And as you mentioned, it does link back to my background that I was born in this part of Greece, which is very remote. It's off the tourist trail. It's way up north, very close to the borders with Albania and North Macedonia, two other countries. And and these are regions that are very fraught and the relationships with these neighbors have not always been very positive. So I thought that's a really compelling setting in which to set a crime novel. And it's very different to Australia, which is an island continent. So there's no issues with the neighbours there. And it's a region where I was born before I was adopted to an Australian family and grew up here in Australia. Uh, a region where my brothers still live and where I've travelled often to visit them. And I've always taken notes and met some really colourful characters and seen some settings that not many people would have seen. So I thought this is a great unseen setting in which to base a crime novel so i think it's really a bit of a literary unicorn there's not many books that are set in that part of the world but hopefully there's enough familiar themes in there and a character which readers are familiar with to allow them to go on the adventure and experience another culture and another setting which i found just as interesting to write about as the stoning
0: yeah, So the town of Florina is actually your hometown in Greece, isn't it? That yep. where the book is set or one of the towns where the book is set. And the central character of that, there's an interesting parallel with contemporary life too, because George is called in an undercover, not official way, unofficial way to investigate the disappearance of a man called Lefty, who has no identity papers of any kind and, That in a world where practically every breath we take is now digitally tracked is quite an interesting setup. Once again, an audacious starting point for a story. Is that also something that tickled your fancy a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's a very, uh, very good observation. It came from going to that region and meeting one of the characters, a friend of my brother's who described himself as invisible. And I didn't quite understand what that meant. (laughs) My brother's said he has no driver's license, no social security card, no social media accounts, no phone records, no lease. He lives completely off the grid. He doesn't exist for all intents and purposes officially. And I was just as fascinated by the idea of somebody in modern day where everything is tracked electronically. I thought, how does this person function in the modern world? Because they probably couldn't function in a country like Australia or New Zealand. But that is the beauty and charm of a country like Greece, where so much still manages to go on under the radar. It's what got the country into financial difficulty, that it has this rich history of deals that are done under the table that is slowly dying away. And I met this character, this lefty, Quite often we saw him around town. He's very charming. The gift of the gab basically used his charm and his wit and his guile to get through life. And I thought, if I'm going to write a book about this setting and I need a character to populate it, he's got to be the central figure. That's obviously where the title comes from. And the premise of it was that what happens when an invisible man goes missing Do people believe that he's actually gone missing does anyone really care George cares because he's a good friend of his brothers and and that's the premise of the book that he's come in to ostensibly be there for a holiday but at the same time as he's doing that he's helping out trying to find this family friend
0: yeah yeah do you mind me asking a little bit about your brothers how old were you when you first met them
1: When I was adopted, came into the world. They were about 10, 11 years old, so quite a bit older than me. And then I went 30 years before I returned to Greece. I wasn't told that I was adopted until I was about 25. And then it took a few years before I got there. And at that stage, I was 30 years old and they were well into their 40s.
0: And I imagine that you'd had such very different lives. They had spent all of their lives in that area of Greece, had they? And you'd done all of this international travel and serious academic research. So how was it integrating back into that community?
1: Oh, yeah, very much of a culture shock. I felt like I was in a Hollywood movie, that you're meeting these individuals who look like you and have some mannerisms to you, certain things that they do and say but at the same time, very different individuals. They've lived in this town of Florina their whole lives. My brothers, they're unmarried, they look after each other. And I've lived this very different existence in Australia and also traveled internationally and worked in America and the UK. So I guess it's like any sibling, you're similar, but you're very different. The thing that we we differed was that we didn't share a common growing up together. So we we didn't have that history of family dinners and playtime and that sort of thing that I see now in my own children as they grow up. And the uh, language is very different. Their Greek is far more advanced than mine, but we can still carry a conversation. And ultimately, despite these differences and the things that had kept us apart, which was all done with love from the perspective of our parents, has kept us close together. We often talk on the phone now. I've made many different trips back to Greece to see them. We send photos and use technology that wasn't around when our parents were on the scene. But yeah, in the same time that, that I do... See a lot of similarities. There are still a lot of differences between us, and there always will be. So they're my brothers, but in a sense, they almost do feel like cousins because we don't see each other every Christmas, for example, and we don't share that common upbringing in the same household.
0: Yeah. The family theme is very strong in your stories because it is very strong in Greek life. And uh, George Manolis has a son, who, and he's d- separated, divorced from his wife. So he's a long distance father, and that causes him some personal pain and there are quite an interesting reflections there on fathers and sons and it it was making me think that you don't read so much fiction about fathers and sons whereas maybe it's because I'm female but I've come across a lot of fiction about mothers and daughters is that also something that was as close to your heart
1: oh yeah I write it from personal experience I definitely see a lot of crime books especially about the maternal bond and children that go missing and mothers, and I can't really share that level of connection. I see it in my own family, that my boys are are tighter with their mum. I guess that comes just naturally and innately. The idea that, especially young boys, that they do reach an age, my children are coming to that age where the focus starts to shift from mum to dad, that they look at their dad and go, I'm actually going to turn out to be more like him because I am a boy and dad's a boy. And this is something that I experienced with my own dad, but dad was always a little bit more distant. I think it was partly because of the distance that men put between themselves and their own sons. Even back in the day, they didn't talk about their feelings as much. They were very guarded and a little bit colder about toughening up your son, preparing them for the world. So there was that, but there was also for my dad, there was that idea that he and I didn't share any blood that I was actually a gift that came from my mother's family. So even though my mum and dad were my aunt and uncle, my mum's brother was the one who gave the child. So I think that might have played on dad's mind a little bit. And it's just something that I'm a little bit more conscious of now as a father myself, that we've come a long way since then. We talk about our feelings and it's okay to have that side of you as a man and as a boy. And also to share that blood with my sons. So that is something that I'm naturally just going to write about and try to explore in my books. And uh, having George be a father, it reflects my own background. Um, And then having that sort of tension that he's devoted to his job and that has prevented him from being a good father, which is something that's very familiar to crime readers that they have detectives who are married to their job and that causes conflict and tension in their own marriage and in their own family lives.
0: Yeah. Australia has got a very strong tradition of crime writing. It's probably one of the most foremost forms of genre writing and it's been very highly praised. It edges into the literary even though it is still popular fiction and I know that from what some of the comments you've made that you're very aware of this and it helped to attract you into crime writing. Could you talk a little bit about that and some of the names that you particularly admire?
1: The the name that I admire most, there's a lot of credit now given to Jane Harper as being the person who founded Outback Noir most recently, and she absolutely kicked the door down with uh, The Dry*, which was a massive worldwide hit. But the person who came before her was an author called Peter Temple. Mm. And uh, he won the uh, Miles Franklin Award, which is Australia's richest literary prize. And that's for a crime novelist. And yeah. I think it's the only time a crime novelist has managed to do it. So yes. very much inspired by Peter Temple. And he has a character people who draw the dots should be able to see it he has an indigenous cop who's the second protagonist in his books and his name is William Dove so he has a dove and I had a sparrow it's a no-brainer my admiration and reference to him is right there on the page he came before Jane Harper and was also praised internationally but as you mentioned someone like Chris Hammer who I know and He also lives here in Canberra, is a wonderful author. And uh, the other one I hold up in high regard is he's been writing for many years. And you can see that on the page, his books, uh, the writing is just so precise, is Gary Disher. And he's another author who is also known internationally. Nowadays, there's almost an Outback Noir book every month that's always getting Mm -hmm. published. There's so many other writers who are coming through. And I guess with The Invisible, that's why I also wanted to try and do something a, a little bit different to stand out from the crowd. But, yes, absolutely a rich tradition. And the other book that I think about that the stoning was compared to, um, because it was a bit dystopian almost at times, was a book called Wake in Fright, which is written by uh, Kenneth Cook. And it did become a feature film, I think, in 1971. And it's had always had a bit of an old underground cult following. And they did a remake of it recently, and they reissued the original but it's just that the, the way that it portrays Australia as being this country of, of yahoos and it almost took it to that ridiculous point as if to make a point about Australia and where we, what we're doing right and doing wrong. So that's another book that helped inspire the stoning.
0: Fantastic. So did you read, read a lot of crime yourself when you were younger, younger kid or young man?
1: Oh yeah. Going back now, talking things like Agatha Christie type mysteries. Yes. I can't even remember some of.
0: Them. Yeah, yeah.
1: Going back that far, but yeah, just the uh, the who done it and the genre has come a long way since then. Now it's almost not a case of having a detective or a journalist who comes in and has no connection with the place. They've got to have a, a personal stake in a story. They don't just come in and and treat all the suspects and solve the crime and then leave again. Yeah. But I guess when you write as many books, Agatha Christie, to have that personal connection manufactured in every instance is is quite challenging. So that's all ahead of me to work out how to do that. But the nice thing about having a a character and a supporting cast of characters is that you can create a universe and you might have other books that feature characters who might have been secondary characters, they become prominent. You can shift settings, set them in, in other countries. Maybe I have another book set in Greece in me at some point in time. But yeah, it's all ahead of you when you start out as a novelist.
0: Sure. Look, moving away from talking about the specific books to a little wider look at your life, tell us about your work now are you writing full-time now have you given away science altogether no
1: i still work as a scientist i don't work in the academic field anymore it's more in science administration and communication and i'd love to be able to write full-time but i'm not at that stage yet so i would say myself more of a part-time writer much of the stoning and a lot of the invisible was written after midnight i guess that's when the day is done and it's really quiet And you can just sit there and characters and the words start to appear on the page. It was always very challenging to get to sleep if I've had a particularly fruitful night. And the writing that you do on the fringes, you steal an hour or two here or there. But that's almost a good thing because it almost forces you to to write during that time. I don't know how I'll go as a full-time writer. Worry about that when we come to it.
0: We are starting to come to the end of our time together. So I do want to ask you about your reading tastes now. Um, It's called joys of binge reading because we do predicate it on the idea that people binge read these days in the way that they binge watch tv if you've got any chance to read then who are you reading
1: i looked at i thought about this and i actually don't binge read a lot i like to move around and be inspired by a number of authors the book i'm reading at the moment is nothing that interesting it's research for my next book It's a colonial a novel that was set in the early 1800s in australia i won't talk about what it is exactly because as I said I'm using it as inspiration for my next book but the language is very out there and it's very much research so I tend to shift between research read and fun reading I guess and at the moment I'm in a research phase and I'm looking at this early colonial in Australia nothing to do with crime or anything like that but it's informing my next book
0: good let's look ahead then for the next year or so. What are you hoping to get done in the next year or two? In the
1: next year, there is a new book that will be coming out in 2023. So it'll be the third book in the series. I won't say too much about it other than to say it is set back in Australia. I've had my little Greek holiday and I'm bringing (laughs) the story and the characters home. And what I'm doing now is preparing for the book after that. And as I said, it's a book that is being inspired by colonial uh, Australia. So that will also be set in Australia again. So I guess what I would like like to keep doing is just to be able to keep writing and keep publishing. Every book is a challenge to get it out and to write something, I guess, same but different. I know the third book is going to be different from the first two as well, and something that I'm really excited about. And the fourth book, which is the one I'm researching and writing now, which will be for either 2024 or 25. Every book's a journey, researching it, writing it, publishing it, finding an audience. But it's something that I'm very proud of to have this collection of books. And to have set up this universe and to be able to have fun within that space. And hopefully each book can be standalone. If you do read them together, the sum of the parts is greater than any individual. And I can take readers <laughs> on a journey and immerse them fully in a world. So, yeah, the next year for me is uh, is more writing. And that probably shouldn't come as a surprise to you when you no. interview any sort of yeah, seasoned right. author. Could we, uh,
0: could we s- expect that fourth book is... Partly historical or dual timeline?
1: The third book will be that, actually. I'm not quite sure of the fourth book just yet. I guess I just know that it won't be historical fiction, but there might be a dual timeline there. Australia does have this very colourful, like a lot of countries, this colourful, brutal barbaric challenging history and to incorporate that into any modern story I think just brings it to life because our lives now are are very very civilized and almost taken to this extent of that we aspire to a luxury and even a quality of life that my parents never recognized as migrants who came to Australia. I look back at what they were doing and what people are doing now even in thoughts of like cars and holidays and homes and that sort of thing i'm trying to to contrast those two in my current book and hopefully i can pull it off
0: great at the stage of your career i know you're still seeing it as setting up your writing career but when you look back down the tunnel of time is there anything about getting yourself set up in that career that you change and if so what i think the only
1: thing i changed i probably wish i'd done it earlier quite yes. frankly. Yeah. I mean, my first book came out when I was 45 years old, which I talk about this whole thing about debut novelists after 40. And I guess a debut novelist is always very exciting for a publishing house that they get to introduce a new voice to the world. But potentially if that new voice is someone who's young and exciting, that's even more exciting for them. I don't know if I could have written books like this in my 20s or 30s, but I guess I would have liked to have turned my mind to this when I was a little bit younger and just gotten into the world a little bit earlier that's my only real regret i think having a career out of it is challenging maybe if i turned my mind to it earlier i would be having a I would be able to be a full time writer now or not but yeah just doing it a little bit earlier would have been nice
0: yes And Peter, are you a person who's active online and where can readers find you online? Is there a way that they can reach out to you? Yeah,
1: my social media platforms on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I do get messages probably mostly through Instagram and Facebook. So if you just Google me, I do have a profile there for all the social media platforms. And I often get messages through my writing page on Facebook and respond to those It's really great to hear from readers, to put all this work in and send your books out into the world. And it's really nice to get reviews in mainstream media outlets. But then to also hear that you've got readers that are continuing to stick with you. I get messages now from people who read the first one and have read the second one and are looking forward to the third one. It's just nice to get those messages. I don't think readers understand how significant that is for writers. We don't often get messages like that. So if there is a, uh, an author that you've made a connection with and you can track them down, and I've done this through their agents sometimes. I've gone through literary agents to get messages to authors and they find it very touching and they often do respond as well. So it is a very powerful thing. Don't underestimate what that means to authors.
0: I must say there was another Australian author I came across that I felt like that about and that's Adrian Highland. I don't know if you've seen his work, but I really felt a little bit of that feeling of, oh, I I really felt it was a discovery when I came across this book. I didn't know this guy existed and he writes so well, that kind of feeling. Mm. Yeah,
1: Adrian's, I haven't read his latest book, but I think it was about 10 years in the making. So I'm looking forward to it.
0: Look, that's wonderful. We've come to the end of our time today, but it's been fantastic to talk. And you certainly are an author that's keeping your readers guessing. We will put those links on the show notes for this episode so people can find them.
1: Great. Thanks for your time, Jenny. It's great Thanks, to be a part Peter.
0: of it. It's great. Thanks for your time. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Next week on Binge Reading, best selling international author Jane Green with Sister Stardust, a fiction based on real life, the story of Talitha Getty, wife of mega rich Paul Getty, and their bohemian lifestyle in rock and roll Marrakesh in the 60s. That's next week on Binge Reading. Remember once again, if you enjoy what you hear, add a review for the show on your favourite podcast host so others can hear about us too. That's it for today. See you next week and happy reading. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director, and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both lighthearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.com co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Bye.